You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Bella Ellis is the author of The Diabolical Bones. That's her newest novel. And The Vanished Bride, it's her first novel, this first in a series of novels about the Bronte sisters. Thank you for joining me, Bella. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. One of the things I thought that was really fascinating from the very beginning as I looked at these books, was just the story of the Bronte sisters. These people are an incredible family, and this is a family that you encountered at a very young age. So tell us about your first encounter with the Brontes. I was about 10 years old and on a family holiday in Yorkshire, and and it was raining, obviously. (laughs) It always is, almost. And so we wanted to do something indoors. And so my mum said, well, we're only a few miles from the Bronte Parsonage Museum. We'll go and visit it. And I was completely horrified by this idea at the age of 10. Couldn't think of anything worse than going to look at a house of some dead authors. Um, But amazingly, as soon as I really approached the parsonage and then walked through the door the Bronte spell sort of cast itself over me and I've been trapped by it ever since. Wow that's amazing and I can see why that would happen because as I read your books I kind of looked back and did some a little you know a thumbnail of research on the Brontes myself and realized why well, I was in college when I first read Wuthering Heights, so I just knocked my socks off, and they remain off to this very day. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's, it's an amazing book. Um, but I think when I was the thing that I appealed to me about them when I was a little girl was they they were very much they appeared like me. They were very you know they had their own little imaginary worlds. They made their own tiny little books. They um, were very bookish and quite geeky and as that sort of nerd kid at school I really did they really did uh, appeal to me and I loved I think I loved them first because they sort of showed me almost what was possible for anybody even if they were a bit weird (laughs) (laughs) you know one of the things that strikes me is how ahead of their time they were in terms of you know their the position of women in the world at the time when they lived, women were seen as little more than like the servants, essentially, to, to men who ran the world and ran everything and did any, everything and said everything that everybody should do. But the uh, Brontes, all three of them were very intelligent. They were, and actually, there's four because there was a, a brother, Branwell, and, and he's a wonderful character in the books and in reality. Uh, you. Uh, alluded to their storytelling this began very early for them they were uh they created their own kind of narnia didn't they they did they had they partnered up um very young patrick um bronte their dad brought home a set of toy soldiers tin toy soldiers um and those toy soldiers formed the basis for lots and lots of their imaginary worlds and their games um, and Charlotte and Branwell had an imaginary world that they called Angria, and Emily and Anne had an imaginary world that they called Gondol. And these were really, really richly developed um, creations with maps and books and reams of poetry and love and betrayal. Uh, it was all going on there. And I think Emily actually really lived in her imagination and in Gondol more than she did in reality because it was there that she felt she could truly be herself and be who she wanted to be. You know, I think as I encountered these people's characters, it was really had an interesting reaction because I've been immersed in their stories and then to be immersed in their stories again in the story of them, it was really, really fun Talk about uh, turning 
authors into characters because, I mean, many authors spend a lot of time in front of a typewriter, non-exciting characters. So talk about like looking at the reality of their lives and finding a place in which to set your stories and the kind of research you did. Yeah, it was quite a daunting prospect. Um, I, I was, as soon as I had the idea, I thought I really want to do this. But then I was also like, really scared to do it because I felt that you know I might offend a lot of people because lots of people really really love the Brontes Um, (laughs) people don't know anything about them which is part of the drive uh for me to write these books but the people who do know about them know a lot about them um so I guess the the thing that I led with is that we we feel like we know a lot about their lives but actually only about five percent of their lives is recorded which leaves a lot of space for um fiction (laughs) and I so and, and I knew a fair bit about their lives as well but I went dug into the research more in a more uh in-depth level spent a lot of time in Howard a lot of time at the parsonage um looked at some of the treasures that they have at the parsonage, their drawings and letters, their little books, uh, which is my favorite. Uh, Could you describe these little books? Because I think they're one of the most fascinating aspects uh, of the, of the Barantes. Yes, they are lovely. So when they were children, they made um, miniature books and miniature copies of Blackwell's magazine, which is one of their favorite magazines. Um, for their toy soldiers to read and they made them so tiny like this um like this you can't see me uh about maybe two inches by one inch and um they wrote in them tiny tiny letters and sort of basically made facsimiles of their favorite magazines and their favorite books for their soldiers and that's how completely involved in their imaginary worlds that they were um, so for me as a child, that was a lovely lead in. And also when I was thinking about um, writing the Bronte, the Bronte system mysteries, I sort of thought that they would approve because they liked to create worlds within worlds. And I'm creating a world within their lives. Um, and I always say there's no evidence that the Bronte sisters were amateur detectives, but there also is no evidence that they weren't. <laughs> Very good. You're the spirit of the age. Prove they weren't. I, hard to do until we get time travel working. Maybe we already have that working. <laughs> That's so, a good question. <laughs> so tell us, uh, when you started researching, where did you look and, and how did you, your re- did you already have kind of the plot for the books or the plots for the books when you started your research or did that come, did the plots come out of the research? always had an idea that I wanted to in a way reverse engineer the plots of uh, their novels so that I could play with the idea that things that happened in the in their detections and their in their lives as detectives inspired some of the things that happens in their novels and I've certainly done that in The Vanished Bride and uh, The Diabolical Bones Um, but I also really wanted to get their voices as as good as, as as carefully captured as I could because I want to pay homage to them I love them very much and so I don't want to sort of just roll out two-dimensional versions of them um so I, I spent a lot of time reading Charlotte's letters of which thankfully we have many um and it was very useful to get into her her voice and her mindset and also some of the things about Charlotte that she probably didn't want us to know like her secret unrequited love for her tutor Monsieur Hager um, and the love letters that she wrote to him which didn't come to light until I think uh, about 1910 Um, and Anne again really a lot about Anne that you can glean from little details of her books I mean the things that she writes about She's really passionate about. If Anne was alive today, she'd be 100% be an activist. She'd be protesting somewhere. Um, and she is a remarkably strong woman and, mark, and remarkably courageous in, much, in a much bigger way than I think we've known for a long time. Because a lot of t- for a long time, people thought Anne was sort of the rubbish Bronte sister in a way, uh, which is quite offensive. 
to Anne and and me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Emily is the mysterious one. Emily is there is very little that we know about Emily outside her uh, magnificent poetry and of course uh, her incredible novel Wuthering Heights. So. I think Emily can almost be anybody to anyone, but we do know that Charlotte uh, was based the character of Shirley on Emily, which is quite a handy thing to uh, have when we're working out her character as being quite bold, quite um, fearless, and um, on the one hand, very confident, and on the other hand, very, very, very shy and doesn't want to talk to people. You know... uh one of the things I think that is really fun about reading his books is there are mysteries, but there are mysteries on two levels, and you alluded to this a bit, which is that as we're reading the book, we want to find out the you know what's going on in the, the current plot line in the book and with the mystery they're, they're trying to solve. And that's very, very involving and wonderful. But also at the same time as readers, we're look, thinking that, well, they're going to write these incredible books that are going to literally change our world. And, and we're looking for the pieces of that. And you do a good job of like laying that out. So talk about the two kinds of plots. You have the plot of things that are happening in the current day, in their current day, but also the plots that are happening within the characters that you're developing of Charlotte and Emily and Anne as they come to the point where they start thinking about things that are going to be in their novels. Yeah, I mean, I, that is that was tremendously good fun to do. Um, the plot, the mystery plots, I um, try to make those entertaining and sort of zip along and uh, twisty turny. Um, as best as I can um and in amongst that is the sort of development of Charlotte Emily and Anne as these women who are heading towards this this moment in time as you say where they just seem to set the world alight with their fiction um and I think it's it is really trying to recreate the journey that they did go on in their in their real lives and they knew they had to make money principally, mm-hmm. uh, because Branwell was too drunk or in disgrace to make any. Um, and they knew, and they hated teaching. All of them hated teaching. They didn't want to be teachers or governesses. Um, and so uh, Charlotte hit upon the idea that they should try to earn money through their writing. Uh, in The Diabolical Bones, you see that they've just sent off um, their, or they've just actually been offered to to have their collection of poetry published, um, which is their sort of first step. And we don't quite know at the end of the Diabolical Bones how that's going to happen. In book three, we find out what happens there. Um, But for them, for each of them, it's a journey in this, towards this uh, feeling of being able to embrace who they were, which is incredibly creative incredibly intelligent uh, and and incredibly brave women who were prepared to just put them put their work out there and not only to do it in a sort of half-hearted way like you know not to write a sort of trite romance that there were a lot of around about the middle of the 19th century but to just write out of their skins write the books of their lives and um, literally in Emily's case really changed literature with what they were doing so it is fascinating to me how these three lower middle class young women who lived in this very remote part of the country at the time somehow created these sparks between them that sort of turned the parsonage into a dynamo and it sort of powered the whole of literature for a good well ever since in a way it's it's kind of it's sending out these pulses of energy um, and creative energy into the world and 150 years later and it's quite remarkable I think one of the really interesting characters is Branwell because I, I didn't know anything about him and as we meet him I mean one of the things you point out is this whole family was really quite intelligent they were brilliant they were creative they were forceful and for the sisters the limitations 
uh, that were imposed upon them by the society at the time were actually like a fence they could climb and achieve really great things with. Branwell had none of those limitations. He was, it seems like he was equally intelligent, but the fact that he was essentially, as a man, completely empowered to do anything he want left him at seas. And I think you do a good job at describing the experience of somebody who's smart, who's sensitive, has but has so much uh, unchecked opportunity that he doesn't really know what to do with himself except to jump into the sea and almost drown. Yes, yeah, I mean, that is that is Branwell, yeah. He, he did have, uh, because he was the son, the mm-hmm. only son, he was he was afforded a lot of opportunities that the sisters weren't and they were all educated to a really high standard but Brenwell was sent to art college um Patrick helped him to become a Freemason in the hopes that it would get him you know on the path to a decent career he worked in the railways and got fired because some money went missing um and it just seemed that wherever he went he got himself into a worse situation and he got fired from one job because he had an affair with um somebody's maid um and then Anne got him a job at Thorpe Green where she was governess um and Branwell promptly had an affair with his boss's wife um which for him was this great great love affair that he never recovered from um i think for mrs robinson perhaps wasn't quite as uh as an emotional an attachment for her but nevertheless it resulted in branwell res- uh being fired with 20 pounds and anne being forced to resign with six pounds um and i think after that, really, he was on a sort of downhill trajectory that he just couldn't recover from. It was, And it is a shame. His family tried so hard to kind of pull him back from the brink of alcoholism and um, opiate abuse and just serious depression. Um, but they couldn't they couldn't do it. And the final nail in the coffin was when Mrs. Robinson's husband died. And Branwell thought, well, this is it. This is his time. Now he can go and marry her. Um, instead, though, she sent him, she sent her coachman to tell him he wasn't allowed to contact her because she couldn't ever marry again. If she married again, she'd be um, disinherited. And then quite soon after that, Branwell found out that wasn't true. And that, that basically just pushed him over the edge, bless him. And, uh, and he fell apart. Whereas Charlotte, who was deeply in love with her professor not only could she not do anything about it she she couldn't really fall fall apart because as a woman it should be ruined if somebody thought anything had gone on untoward with her and her professor um or if she suddenly if she got home to the parsonage and flung herself on the sofa and said i can't go on my heart is broken everyone be going look what are you doing don't be so ridiculous put yourself together woman so I think Branwell was indulged, and ultimately that was his downfall. You know, there's an absolutely haunting portrait of the three sisters that Branwell himself painted, and you can see how he tried to paint himself out of the portrait, but you can still see the edges. It's like his ghost is hovering behind him. It's just really heartrending when you understand what goes on. And one of the joys of these books is this is a really fun way to figure out who the Brontes were. That, I mean, that's, I have a print of that painting just over there on my wall. Uh, again, you can't see it, but I love it. Um, I, um, I, yeah, I think that's partly for me, part of the drive of wanting to write these books is because I think the Bronte family were much more interesting than many of us know uh you know there's all sorts of things going on behind the scenes um the affair with mrs robinson branwell may also have had an illegitimate child although that's not totally confirmed charlotte was in love at least three times during her lifetime before she married uh mr bell nichols we never really know. Emily is a total enigma. We never really know what makes her tick and if who she fell in, if she fell in love ever. Um, 
Anne may have been in love with um, a curate called William Waitman, but we, she may have written a poem about his tragic death at the age of 26. Um, there's so much about them. Patrick is an amazingly fascinating man, like years ahead of his time for a Victorian uh, person. He was incredibly liberal. He advised um, an unmarried girl who'd fallen pregnant in his parish not to rush into marriage, but to save up money and said that the parish would look after the child. And he also advised uh, the wife of a curate who came to him because her husband was an alcoholic and she was a victim of domestic abuse. He told her to leave her to leave him, to leave her husband, which is, when you think about it, in the middle of the 19th century, quite an amazing thing it's just it's way ahead of its time um and it's probably that story that inspired Anne to write the tenant of wildfell hall so they're just they are just incredible people they, they exist in this moment in time where they all paths converge to just create a wonderfully interesting family and three wonderfully interesting women and one two wonderfully interesting gentlemen as well even though even if one of them is a little bit flawed, bless him. I still love him. He, that's one thing I think you do well is to make uh, these characters really sympathetic and interesting and also distinct because <clears throat> as we read about the, the three sisters, you do a really good job of setting each one up to be very distinct and different. And so talk about, like, uh, Char Charlotte is really seems to be kind of the in-charge one in the book. She's the, the go-getter. And the, these women, they, they decide to become detectors, as they call them. It's not, There's no such thing as detective yet, although there's a suggestion of such a thing in London, but that's way far away for them. And their constable is just a guy who takes money to... Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so to talk, the book begins with... with a really interesting and uh, they're pretty terrifying scene. So talk about, you know, starting the book and, and the just the idea of, you know, getting these sisters involved in this. It seems to me, so the, the book opens with um, the disappearance of a young wife and mother. She's disappeared from her home, Chester Grange, and um, she has vanished and all that's left behind is a room that's covered in blood nobody knows what's happened to her and nobody seems to be trying that hard to find out um when charlotte emily and anne hear about this um through their friend who is a governess at chester grange they decide to go and just have a look they go they want to go and visit their friend matilda and they just want to have a look because they are and i think this isn't too much of a stress they are very curious people all creative people are curious people and I think they would really want to know what had happened um Emily's got a, quite a dark sensibility and she always loves a gothic tale so she would be right there Charlotte would want to support her friend Matilda and Anne is just very interested in the whereabouts of this poor young woman where has she gone what's happened to her so off they trot uh, across the moor to find out and I think what I liked writing about The Vanished Bride really uh, is that both m me and the sisters are sort of discovering how to be detectors. <laughs> so I've, I've never, prior to this novel, I'd never written a um, detective fiction or a mystery novel before. Um, so we go about it together in the same way. And of course, there are interesting parameters in that there's only so much they can do in 1845, um, you know, in terms of the clues that they can find, the forensics, um, the how they can interpret a piece of bone or a tooth that they find. So I had a great time actually trying to push the limits of what was possible in 1845 and also to have them make those leaps and those discoveries themselves to, to decide to go and see a doctor to to show them um, this bone that they found and the tooth that they found and um, to try and track down um, a postmark on the letter which doesn't seem to fit in with the story that they've been told. So they, they're basically, in The Vanished Bride, they're evolving into detectors um, and 
becoming quite practiced at it. By the time we get to the di- diabolical bones, they're pretty good. And um, in the third novel, The Red Monarch, they, uh, they're up, they're kind of expert, but they're learning all the time. And I think that's really important that the more they detect, the more they learn, and the more it feeds into them eventually writing these novels. You know, it, it's really fun to read, to, as we read this, to read the different call-outs to specific parts of of the novels. Uh, Jane Eyre gets a lot of attention. There's a, a great scene where, I think it's Emily who sees what she calls a, a, a guy gash, which is... Guy uh, gash, yeah the the uh, like the traditional black dog that's a harbinger of death or maybe a bringer of death it appears as dogs as as horses and this is of course ends up in Jane Eyre as well so talk about uh lacing the books with two sets of clues there's the clues to the crimes that are being committed and clues to the uh, art that will be created as a result of the experiences yes. they're undergoing, which it, you must have had yeah. a lot of fun doing that. I yes, that's so much fun to do, and it's it's one of those things that I always I always think that I don't you don't have to know about Bronte novels or have read a Bronte novel to pick up these books. Oh no, hopefully you you'd want to after you'd read them, but you don't have to. But if you have read a Bronte novel and you do love the work and the lives of the Brontes there are lots of little easter eggs that are strewn out throughout the um throughout all the novels um sometimes there are lines there are little lines that are from letters that the sisters actually wrote or from their novels sometimes it's character names sometimes it's um imagery like the guy trash um or uh, I don't want to spoil it, so I have to be careful what, what I use. Um, but there are all little tiny echoes and elements that have been fed in from their lives and works that are there to see them if you want to see them. In- including the name of the author of these books. <laughs> that is because um, the, the uh, Brontes were not going to be publishing under their as women, particularly Emily, and and she published uh, Wuthering Heights as by Ellison Bell. Now, <laughs> sounds Good. sounds pretty familiar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's 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 not a secret that Bella Ellis is not my real name. My my real name is Rowan Coleman, um, but I knew that when I wanted to write these novels, I. And you know, it was important for me to write them under a different name because they are very different to anything that I've written before. But also because I really did want to emulate the sisters in the way that they chose to write under pseudonyms uh, for the first part of their career. And nobody really knows why they call themselves the Bells. Um, in in The Vanished Bride, they make up a firm of solicitors called Bell Brothers & Co., um, which is just, I made up off the top of my head. Um, but Emily was Ellis Bell, and I am Bella Ellis, because maybe Emily is my favorite. <laughs> okay. You know, I was just thinking of Bell's, uh, I'm pretty sure that it was George Bell who was the inspiration, uh, uh, Conan Doyle's inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I don't think I knew that. I'm going to have to go and look that up. Oh, that's a There are some people who say that it was because the there were new church bells put in the tower of the church that year that they published the books. And there's ah. also, somebody, um, I forget his name, but there is somebody, a Mr. Bell, that some people wonder that they might have been referring to as well. Where the Curra, Ellis and Acton come from, I don't know. It's really interesting. Obviously, they all, you know, Charlotte is Curra. Emily's Ellis and is Acton, so they keep their initials. You know, the characters of the sisters are so different. I really liked Anne because we first in the early scenes we see uh, Charlotte. She's very much in charge, and she's kind of you know the manager of things. She's asking the big questions. Um, I, Emily is also 
like that, but she's like a little more restrained. She's more the Columbo type who doesn't ask many questions, but just looks around and sees a bunch of stuff. But Anne is very, very different. She's, uh, I think, like the empath or almost uh, the the psychic member of the set. And I think you do a good job of what's, uh, of creating like a goth, a truly gothic atmosphere where there might be something kind of spooky going on, but we don't really heat, it doesn't, you know, the ghosts don't come out and claws, but there, there are ghosts in these books just in terms of the gothic uh, aspect. Oh, yes. Um, that They lived with, you know, the legends and ghosts that every day, they were, the housekeeper Tabby, who I is, has become quite an important character in the books, um, was basically their mother. She, you know, she, she brought them up um more or less and would often tell them the local stories the ghost stories the legends the stories of the fairies um and they lived in a world where both things were true simultaneously you know that you lived in this world of science and reason and christianity but at the same time you lived in a world where you might see a guy trash on the on the moors or if encounter a fairy or you did worry about you know if you'd done something to annoy the elves so it was it was very much a sort of boot embraces approach to their day-to-day lives and also they loved gothic fiction i mean um just any all of their novels are absolutely full of the gothic and the sort of mysterious and slightly paranormal and in emily's case just the downright paranormal um and it felt important to me to put that into their sort of their lives as well because it was definitely part of the backdrop they they um tabby told them that her mother had seen fairies on the moors when she was a child and that the the fairies had only disappeared off the moors when industrialization came so they kind of grew up believing that fairies were a real thing that had been living in the same land that they inhabited and you know until sort of 50 years ago so it's for them i think it was a very real and present thing the idea of magic and the idea of life after life after death and and the the landscape of yorkshire is is an important character too because it to be on it hasn't changed a whole lot since then even now it's it's pretty those moors are big they're windswept they're empty they're cold they're frigid and there's a, a feeling when you're motoring through them if you when you're driving through those through those uh that landscape and encountering just like a little town with a gothic church full of graveyard right in front of it and then a few little stone houses it's a a pretty spooky place it is brilliantly spooky i love it (laughs) i love it my heart is there um but i think that's wonderful thing about the landscape is that it reflects their sisters in in all of their different guises you can be i've walked up there when it's been absolutely shrouded in fog and you can't see more than two or three steps in front of your face. And it's almost like you're you're walking into another realm. It's incredibly spooky and wonderful. And you know that, that, that they would have experienced that, those conditions. And then again, you can be up there on a beautiful hot summer's day and the cotton grass is dancing and there's curlies nesting in the heather and it's warm and gentle and embracing and you just fall in love with it. So it's, it is a timeless landscape, definitely. And I think that's kind of wonderful as well, because particularly, you know, you, I know that when I take a path, say, uh, up to Pondon Kirk or uh, from Pondon Kirk to Top Withens, which is the... Um, geographical location of Wuthering Heights I know that they walked those same paths and I know that they saw that same view and uh, it's quite an emotional and amazing thing to be able to put yourself in their literal footsteps like that. I think that that's one of the appeals of historical fiction and you do this really well combining historical fiction and the mysteries with the the real characters is it creates in the reader a real sense of space and resonance 
because as we read the narrative, we're immersed in their perspective, seeing it from there, but we're also cognizant of our own perspective and that kind of echo back and forth. You play with that really well. Talk about using that kind of echoes between the past and the present to create you know, a, a sense of a really big world because the world seems big and big enough to accommodate their giant size emotions, particularly Emily, who seemed like she was, in a sense, the way Stephen King described the character of Firestarter, where the girl had a little bit of power, but that was like a crack in reality through which the entire universe full of emotions could flow into Emily, who would then write Wuthering Heights, which is all about that. Wow, yeah, that's a great way of describing it, actually. Um, gosh, uh, thank you for saying that. I actually take inspiration from uh, from the way that they construct their own books, particularly Jane Eyre, which is um, such a master, masterfully constructed book. It's a brilliant story. It's a great gothic tale. It's an epic romance. It's got a twist in the middle that you would never see coming if you hadn't read it before. But uh, more than that, Jane travels through time at lightning speed as our narrator so one minute she'll be in the past uh, looking back at a great from a great distance at the events that happened to her as a child as a young woman and next minute she's standing next to mr rochester and telling you what's on the table and you're there with her and you're in that moment too and um, that was kind of part of the inspiration for wanting to link the present world into the past world and sort of make one echo the other and I think primarily we just aren't that different you know 150 years is nothing in the scheme of things and as human beings we are the same we're the same people we have the same passions interests wants and needs and it's it's because they captured that those different aspects of humanity and the human condition so precisely that their novels are still read and are still relevant today and I think I just really did want to show that in their characters and also to show that the things that matter to them in the 1840s and things that the social injustice and the things that need a changing in the 1840s in some ways still needs a lot of work now actually we haven't come as far as we might like to think we have no i mean any one of those characters would, would be i think quite comfortable in today at the forefront as a as a rabble riser for the, the me too movement yeah. all yeah. of the the injustice movements it doesn't matter which one because they, they understand all of those problems and i think that speaks to the idea that the problems that plague us are not new and rarely solved. That I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? They're rarely solved. And I, I think um, Anne in particular is, she struggles with that. She mm -hmm. struggles with the enormity of change required to make the world into what she considers the place that it should be. Um, and that's part of her character development is trying to rise to that challenge and trying to be somebody who can make a difference, who can change the world for, for the better in some small way. And that's really the goal of her life. That's what she wants to do, which is why it's incredibly tragic that she dies so young because she says in her final words, she says she wished she could have lived a little longer if she had so much she wanted to do. You know, the... Uh stories that the the books that they wrote and the, the things they created now seem you know kind of like the exemplars of what literature should be and we all understand that at the time they were writing they were incredibly creative and doing something that nobody had ever done before and I think that you know you in a sense are kind of like playing with that same kind of thing where you're melding facts there's lots of facts in here anybody who reads these books is going to learn a lot more about the brontes than they probably ever knew and, and more enjoyably than they could find out from reading you know a wikipedia entry so talk about in you know the challenges of slotting in history into fiction so that 
when you're writing about things that are historical, they really are historical and verify. And yet when you make the leap to fiction, it's clear to the reader, okay, this is the fictional part, but it's really fun. It's going to, you know, it gets me, gets me, keeps me going. This is what we live for. You're doing, in a sense, what the sisters did, which is just playing with format again. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, And it's not, I should say, pretend that it's really hard, but it's not as hard as it could be, actually, because there's a lot of really great reference books um, about the Brontes. And I said that uh, only 5% of their life is documented, but it's actually quite easy to find gaps in time. So what I usually will do before I start writing a book, I will um, find a particular space where be it a week a few days a month in uh, that year where there's nothing on record about them we don't know what they're doing um and then I'll check to see if there is you know any letters or anything else going on in the world um I do like to sort of anchor it in the big picture if I can with something more of a sort of world historical moment um I think in The Vanished Bride, there's a there's a moment where Emily meets a geologist who's looking at the idea of um, there have been an have been an ice age and perhaps the world is much older than they thought. Um, He's a good and, character. Oh yeah, I, enjoy, I enjoyed writing that bit because I don't think Emily realizes that a lot, quite a lot of boys think she's very attractive. Um, and I, um, what else? So then I. I sort of check in with what they are doing during that time. So, for example, in The Vanished Bride, they're all at home in August for the first time. That's the first time they've all been at home, August 1845, for a really long time. Um, And they've all come back, apart from Emily, who was there anyway. The other three have come back, having undergone some kind of trauma. So they're, they're all a bit emotionally scarred by what happened at Thorpe Green for Branwell and Anne and what happened in Brussels for Charlotte. Um, And that's really where they are at that point. They don't know. So I know when they decide to start writing. I know when they decided, when Charlotte came across Emily's poetry and decided they should put together a book of poetry. So once you have these little anchors of uh, biographical detail, you're able to sort of use them as the pillars to build the fictional stories in and around. And, it actually seems to flow quite nicely, fingers crossed, uh, to date. So it's it's quite a joy. And what I love particularly is being able to find little small details about their lives, true details that um, you don't often know, you don't often hear about. And that can quite often spark a little bit of plot and a little bit of fiction and sort of send you down on another little path that just adds another layer of richness to it. It's basically, it's my joy. I love doing it. (laughs) You know, for all the great um, joy about, like, reading about uh, people we knew whose books we've read and to read about, immerse those characters in a a compelling mystery, I think one of the, the bedrock of this book is just the great characters and seeing these great characters develop. And... It strikes me that it might be a bit uh, seem a bit formidable to to turn, you know, the world two at least two three of the world's most famous and favorite authors off put on screen and TV and every other format um, to turn them into characters. I think you do a really good job. Did you do? Um, plan out their character development before you started writing or did it emerge after or as you wrote through the interaction of research and the fiction? I I think it happened quite organically because Mm -hmm. it's not I I don't have to sort of invent their character uh, their character build up they that's that's how they develop that's who they were and how they lived and um I think if you pay close attention to the research and to the source material and the letters and to their fiction and everything that they left behind, you can you can see, you can discern um, what kind of women they were. It's the, out of the three of them, the hardest is Emily, um, just because she didn't 
there aren't any letters left behind by her, hardly any. Um, there are her diary papers that she wrote with Anne, but they sort of, she comes across as a sort of sulky teenager in those. Um, and... That seems appropriate for the person yeah. who went, <laughs> whether he hides I never knew that, but yeah, there you go. And there's her wonderful, wonderful poetry and uh, and Wuthering Heights. So I think with, with Emily, she's probably got more fictional elements in her than, um, than the other two. But... Um, I also think Emily is the most beloved. I think people love her because she can be, she can be anybody's hero. She can be, if you need a hero who is a bit quirky, say perhaps a little bit, you know, on the spectrum, a bit neurodiverse, um, then Emily's your girl. Or if you need uh, somebody who's wild and uh, in tune with nature and a little bit of a mystic, then Emily's also your girl. Um, and if you need somebody who's really socially awkward and um, but also not afraid to go and break into that manor house of a dangerous gentleman in the middle of the night under a full moon, Emily is your girl. So she can be she can be anybody to anyone, really. And I, I that's perhaps why I do love writing her, because I can have a lot of fun with her. Now, you have two books out. Um you uh, referred to a third one. How far do you think you can take this? Uh, will this keep going on? Uh, I mean, these are really fun. They're, they're st- one thing I have to say is that for all the kind of like, I guess, edifying aspects of them in terms of like learning about these great authors, they're really just a blast to read. They're, they're, they're stonking good literature, <laughs> good fun. So talk about making all this stuff kind of fun. Um. Yeah, well, I really wanted it to be fun. There is quite a lot of Bronte fiction, uh, fiction about their lives. Um, And it's really great fiction, but it's also inevitably really sad and really tragic. And uh, for me, I wanted to almost give them more life than they had. (laughs) (coughs) And to to just give them some adventures and some more experiences than that they than they might have had we don't know because like i say we only know about five percent of, of their lives they could have easily have been detectors um but for me it was about sort of recasting them as these three-dimensional women and they're so much more than about how they died and they mm-hmm. di- they all died tragically very young but they're so much more to them than that and they were really funny and they did have this kind of acerbic sibling rivalry and they were a bit catty sometimes but um and I just really wanted to put that into the book and put that into the characters so that we could enjoy them as these vibrant living people rather than authors that we lost far far too young now uh, one thing I have to say is that it's almost impossible to to read uh, these books with without you know trying to cast them <laughs> as a as a movie, and it seems like this was uh, you know made to be uh, a series. Have have these been optioned? Uh, yes, they have been optioned. They have, and um, things are are going on apace. So hopefully, you know, in uh, these things always take a really long time, oh, but yeah. hopefully eventually it will arrive on a screen uh, at some point in the future which would be marvelous I mean I would love it but I would love it particularly um, because it would bring more people to how earth and to the parsonage and and basically just to keep the legacy of the sisters alive I think would just be if I can play a tiny tiny small part in that I'd be absolutely thrilled now you would say the parsonage is still going. Is it? Um, it, I when I went to Yorkshire, I, I I did not go there. We stayed in Thirsk, and uh, so talk about how the place they lived 150 years ago is faring today. It's it's struggling. Um, I think like so many places, uh, museums, art galleries in the UK, um, theatres, it's absolutely suffering under the conditions of the pandemic because it 
the main way that it raises funds is people visiting it. And of course, people have not been able to visit it for pretty much a year. There were a few weeks in the summer when we were able to go, but it's been shut for a very long time now. Um, and so it is really important for us to, for me to sort of do all I can to encourage people to go to the Bronte Society website and you can donate uh, any money there if you wanted or you go to the Bronte Society gift shop and you can just go and buy some lovely presents for your uh for you yourself or your loved ones and um and that way that helps keep the parsonage going as well because it is such a precious resource it's it's unique in a way because there's nothing nothing else like it you walk through the door and you are able to walk into the home of these amazing women and this amazing family and to see so many of their original artifacts there so many of these incredibly precious things that they preserved so well I mean even the table in the front room where they used to do their writing it's it's the table that they used to sit at and write at and uh carved into the surface is an E for Emily and when you can walk into a place and feel that much of a of resonance of their lives there almost as if they are still there with you it's just a truly remarkable so I'm very keen to try and protect that and to do everything I can to help protect that so that it's there for the next generation and and for my children who went there for the first time in the summer and absolutely loved it I want them to grow up being able to visit The new novel by Bella Ellis is The Vanished Bride. Coming out this week is The Diabolical Bones. Thank you for joining me, Bella. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.